Oh, there she is. Ah, oh, good, good, good. Hi, Erin. Hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you doing? Good, let me adjust this. Light. Yeah, sure. Well, <laughs> work at all. Um, sorry, trying to figure out how to. Yeah. It should be either in front of you, like behind the computer. Yeah. Do you yeah. Have overhead light. I don't have an overhead light, is the thing. Not in the same room where my um, where my internet works. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> but I think this is okay. Yeah, that looks good. Oh well, it's good to see you. I'm glad that. Um, uh, my uh, my texting, I saw I keep it right here just in case, and so it worked well. I figured. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any questions before we get started? Um, I don't think so. I'm just okay. All right. Let me introduce you. Uh, Kendra Mon uh, is representing the Department of Peace Building tonight, and Deanne Tate is our managing director. Nice to meet you, Erin. Yeah. I'm going to mute because I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's eight o'clock. Are you ready for me to go ahead and? Uh, yeah. We have one person in the waiting room. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll let her in. Hi, Kyle. All right. I'm going to go ahead and start the live stream button. And when you're blank, it means we're on. Um, go ahead and start talking because we're recording. And yeah, so just go ahead. Go okay. for it. All right. So welcome, everyone, to our National Peace Builder podcast. We are being live streamed on Facebook and our call is being recorded. Our guest tonight is Erin Daly. Erin is professor at law at Delaware Law School and the co-founder of the Dignity Rights Project. And I'll introduce her further in a few minutes, but you wanna wave, Erin? Hello, everyone. Yeah. And so we'll be putting links in the chat. So if you wanna click on a link, it'll be in your browser for you to review when the call is over. Uh, if you look down at the bottom of your screen, you can click on uh, chat if your window's not already open on the right side. And if you look on your chat at the very bottom, there's three dots. In the lower right corner of the chat box, if you click on that, you can save the chat. You can do it now and everything will be saved at the end of the call. It'll automatically be saved on your desktop. So our mission at the Peace Alliance is to empower civic action toward a culture of peace. We're guided by the five cornerstones of peace, community peace building, humanizing the justice systems, fostering international peace, practicing personal peace, and uh, practicing peace in schools and cultivating personal peace. I always say practicing personal peace. We might need to change that. And so the five cornerstones are endorsed in the blueprint for peace. And clicking on the link in the chat will allow you to sign the blueprint for peace, which will notify your state and federal officials that you support policy priorities around peace building and violence reduction. And you want those priorities reflected in legislation. And today we've had 2.5 million uh, contacts made to our elected officials. 
the five cornerstones of peace and the blueprint for peace support the vision and legislation for a U.S. Department of Peace building to be led by a cabinet level secretary. And the goal of this department is to replicate and expand successful programs devoted to ending violence, resolving conflict, and creating and nurturing conditions for peace. And this is not a new idea. This idea has been around since the founding of our country, and it's been introduced into Congress multiple times over the last 200 years. And we currently have a bill in Congress H.R. 1111, and uh, Kendra Mott is going to give us an update about what's happening with the Department of Peace building. She's been a supporter of the Department of Peace, and Department of Peace building has had two different names, three different names, actually, uh, since 2005 and currently serves on the National Committee. She also serves on the Grassroots Infrastructure Committee and is Secretary of the Global Alliance for Ministries and Infrastructures for Peace. So over to you, Kendra. Thank you. I encourage people to look at the homepage that Deanne has created and it's, it's constantly changing and updating. And there's so many actions you can take there on legislation with click, quick clicks and including signing the petition for the Department of Peace Building. And also at, towards the bottom of the page is um, actions you can take for um, encouraging the passage of the Department of Peace Building. There are 32 members of Congress now signed on. And um, this is the second year of the bill. So we start over again in January or whenever the bill is reintroduced. So the office of Barbara Lee, the sponsor of the bill from Berkeley, um, encourages us, encouraged us in the past to send suggestions for the new bill, which we have done. And so now they're um, over at that office and who knows? Some of our suggestions may be included in the new bill. So there's just a lot going on and, and uh, we really appreciate your taking a look at the bill and what the progress is happening, especially joining our third Wednesday call, which is on the calendar at, at the header of the uh, homepage and uh, that will give you the details. The third Wednesday is the Department of Peace Building campaign call. So we invite you to join us. Thank you, Kendra. Oh, so I'm going to introduce Erin Daly. She's a lawyer and professor at Delaware Law School and the co-founder of the Dignity Rights Project. Uh, I'm going to briefly tell you some stuff about her because uh, the bio is very long, so this is not all-inclusive. Professor Daly has written extensively on the law of human dignity, comparative constitutional law, and transitional justice issues throughout the world. She's the author of Dignity Rights, Courts, Constitutions, and the Worth of the Human Person. This is the first book to explore the constitutional law of dignity around the world. I highly recommend the book. Here it is. 
really good. In fact, already my little one of my pages is falling out because I've been marking it up. Uh, and she's also written Reconciliation in Divided Society, Reconciliation in Divided Societies, Finding Common Ground. And uh, I got this first. I started this and it was fascinating. But then this came. So I had to read this because we're discussing this tonight. So. Uh, so I highly recommend both books. Professor Daly serves as the executive director of Dignity Rights International and the director of the Global Network for Human Rights and the Environment. And she's going to start by defining dignity for us and telling us a little bit about that. And then I'm going to um, uh, ask her some questions based on reading the book and any questions that any of you have, raise your hand or put it in the chat. Uh, we're checking Facebook Live. If, if there's any questions there, we will uh, definitely incorporate them into what we're doing tonight. So Erin, welcome. Thank you for what you've written. And uh, I'm. we had a great conversation when we talked about this call. It was just, I was just so excited and it was so interesting. So thank you, Erin, and, and go ahead. It's, it's over to you. Thank you so much. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to just be a part of this conversation. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, to the conversation with all of you. I do just want to correct one thing. I'm no longer the um, director of the Global Network for Human Rights and the Environment. I stepped down from that a little while ago, uh, mainly to focus more on the dignity work, actually. So, um, so I want to start just by actually asking a question which is um, why is peace important? I think it's one of these things that like we take for granted, right? I mean, obviously we want peace, but if you think about it, the reason that we want peace is that the alternative is violence and, the, and violence hurts people or kills people. And we don't want that to happen. And the reason that we don't want that to happen is that every human life matters. And that's the essence of dignity. So um, as Kathy mentioned, I've done a lot of work, my background is in constitutional law, and I've done a lot of work uh, reading and researching the constitutional law, not just in the United States, but also in other countries where courts have really embraced the notion of human dignity as a legal concept. And there is no sort of legal definition. There's no specific definition of dignity I come to a definition really from having looked at the, the global jurisprudence, the cases from all over the world on a huge range of topics because dignity touches so many different things. Um, and the sort of the definition that I come to is the idea that every human being has inherent and equal worth. And each of those words is really important, right? It's inherent which means that we're not waiting for governments to give us dignity. We're not waiting for somebody else to say, yes, as of now you have dignity because if they could do that, then of course they could take it away. Um, it's equal in the sense that every life matters equally. There's all kinds of class and rank and differences among people, but the Universal Declaration of Human Rights tells us that we're all born equal in dignity and rights. From the moment of birth, we have this, uh, and birth, um, 
being a member of the human family, that's part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights language, we have this inherent worth and it's the same for everybody. And it's also important that it's a universal quality. And I think that's what makes the Universal Declaration of Human Rights really a radical document because what it says is that despite all of human history, which has classified and categorized and used hierarchies to distinguish among people in our essence, in our humanity, we're all equal. So I just wanted to start off by sort of centering us and, and sort of giving us a sense of what we're talking about when we're talking about dignity. It's the, this idea of inherent equal worth that we have just by, just by being born, by being born members of the human family. And thank you for putting the UDHR in the in the chat. Thank you. Um, so I don't know if that's sort of a good starting point. Great. Yeah. Uh, when you and I talked, um, I had no idea the depth that dignity can have. Because when you look at the dictionary, it's very basic and simple. It doesn't doesn't go into the depth that you just went into or that the uh, UN Declaration uh, alludes to. And I found this definition, I'm gonna read it and see what you think about it. Uh, dignity, is, dignity is one of the most important things to the human spirit. It means being valued and respected for what you are, what you believe in and how you live your life. Treating others with dignity means treating them the way we'd like to be treated ourselves. Every human has the right to lead a dignified life and fulfill, fulfill his or her potential. Yeah, I think that's a great definition. I think dignity is just such a complex concept. I mean, at a certain level, it's very simple in the sense that we all kind of know what it means. We all have this instinctive sense of, if you ask anybody, do you know what the word means? Everybody would say yes. Mm -hmm. um, so we all feel like we know it. And yet you're right, Kathy, it just has such a depth to it. And one of the ways in which I think it's complex is that it's both internal and external. So it's this internal sense we have of our own worth. And when people feel hurt, when people feel that there's an injustice, when people wanna change something, it's usually because their dignity is harmed and they think that they're entitled to more. And that sense of, I deserve better, is it, that's dignity speaking. Right, that's dignity coming out and saying, this is why, because I'm important and I'm right. just as important as you are. Right. And then on the other hand, it's got this external aspect to it that we want people to treat us with dignity. Mm -hmm. So it's both very individual and arises sort of from the self, mm -hmm. but it's also this very social um, concept because right. it has to do with how we treat each other. And I think that the definition that you gave sort of speaks in a way to, to both of those issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading this, um, that the opposite of dignity is shame. Because if we don't have what we need, there's this sense that there's something wrong with us. Especially in this country, because we were founded uh, under Calvinism, they had the belief that if you had money and were doing well, that you were favored by God. 
So there's some sense in this country that if you don't have what you need, it's your fault. And there's and you feel ashamed of that. I'm wondering what you think about that. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, some people talk about dignity opposite as being humiliation, which I think sort of mm -hmm. invokes, invokes that kind of shame. Right. Um, I think that's right. Uh, and I'll just, um, I'll say just two things about this. One is that one of the things that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights does is that's really important to this conversation and to sort of any sort of post-World War II understanding of dignity is that it's connected with rights. It's not just this philosophical concept. It's not just sort of how you feel about yourself, but it has legal implications. We're all born equal in dignity and rights. So it's this, it's this connection, which is why sort of I got into this, not, not from a philosophy background or a religious background or anything like that, but really looking at how the law treats, thinks about human dignity. And there was a, a recent case that some of you may know about called Obergefell versus Hodges, which is the case from the United States Supreme Court that announced um, the, the, the right to not just to marry, but to marry the person that you choose and including same-sex marriages. And that notion of shame or what it called stigma was really important to the court in that case because what it said was that if we have two different rules, if we have rules for some people that says you can marry whoever you want and then mm -hmm. rules for somebody else that say, well, you can't marry whoever you want. Justice Kennedy in that case was really concerned about the message that the law sends to people mm -hmm. and that message being sort of stigmatizing and, and how not only other people will see you as less than, as a second-class citizen, but then you internalize it and you feel that way too. And that's why to have that kind of discrimination is a dignity harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there were so many different court cases in here around the world that, that addressed different topics that were all related to dignity. Um, and then you had uh, some criticisms of dignity. And one of them that I loved was, um, if dignity can mean all things to all people, then it can mean nothing at all. But you had a statement from rabbis that said, uh, study it from every aspect for everything is in it. And I loved that because it seemed like all of these cases, everything go goes back to dignity. Do you want to say anything about all, you know, like some of the issues that get, get addressed in different cases, not go into them, but just give a, a, the breadth of that? Sure. It's really remarkable to me how many um, different countries um, have incorporated dignity into their law as a very fundamental issue, really all over the world, just to give you sort of one sense of it. There's about 194 countries in the United Nations and 170 of them have constitutions that mention dignity. That's the vast majority. And then there's another whole set of countries where their constitutions don't mention dignity. And the courts have said, but of course, dignity is a part of, of our law. It's a part of how we think about rights. Canada's a good example of that latter. 
And so when you look at the court cases, I was so struck by the fact that there are court cases about dignity, not just from a lot of different countries, but from every region of the world and from every tradition, every legal tradition, every religious tradition, they're all coming to the same thing. And what they're talking about really is this idea of human worth, that it matters, that every life matters. And that comes up in so many different contexts. And that's really your question, Kathy. Um, it comes up in questions about identity. So same-sex marriage, a lot of these same-sex marriage cases that we saw in the early part of the 21st century were dignity cases. It comes up in the context of criminal law, how people should be treated, sentencing, um, death penalty being a violation of dignity. There are cases about that, cases even about life imprisonment being a violation of dignity. So a lot of cases in the context of the criminal law. There's also a lot of cases, as you mentioned, about how the right to life is really a right to live with dignity. And that sort of has a socioeconomic context or a material context that part of living with dignity um, is having shelter, having food, having a healthy environment, um, air you can breathe and you know, clean water. Um, cases about healthcare, cases about education, um, a whole bunch of different, different areas. There's also a lot of cases about political participation. The right to vote is a dignity right. The right to freedom of expression. Again, partly because it comes from sort of within a person. I have these things I wanna say, I wanna communicate. Mm -hmm. And partly because of the social interaction involved in, in expressing oneself and also gaining information. So political participation, rights of association, those kinds of things. Those are all dignity cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to just let you know where I'm going. So there's a connection between dignity, rights, equality, and democracy. Um, and I'll let you talk about that. Um, I want to talk about, after that, economic development and democracy and uh, if we and get into reparations uh, and how that applies to dignity. So um, I only want to start first with just a little bit about the United States. So uh, dignity does, does not appear in the Constitution, and the Supreme Court has always been more comfortable attaching dignity to states, courts, and contracts rather than to human beings. That's from page 71. Um, the Supreme Court's cases amply show its near obsession with the idea of dignity without even a nod to the idea that human beings might have it inherently. Uh, we're not embracing dignity with the ardor of its global peers. That's from page 96. So you want to talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on with the United States? Yeah. Do you have like a week or something that we can talk about? I know. This? Right. I know. <laughs> so, um, so right, there's a chapter in the book about dignity in the courts of the United, in, in the Supreme Court in the United States. And I do, I do want to say sort of in, de in defense of the United States, the idea of human dignity as a right, as a fundamental right and in the way that we're talking about it um, has been with us for a long time, but it really sort of came into its own 
with the United Nations Charter and then the Universal Declaration. So right in the, in the sort of in the ashes of World War II, when countries came together and said, as they said in the, in the UN Charter, twice in our lifetime, we've experienced untold hardship through the scourge of war. How are we gonna fix it? And their answer was by reaffirming faith in human dignity. And while dignity had been in a handful of constitutions in the first part of the 20th century, it was only after um, the 1940s that it started to show up in all of these constitutions and then wave after wave of constitution, post-colonialism, post-communism, post-dictatorship, all kinds of, you know, post-apartheid, all of those countries that were trying to turn the corner on whatever hardship they had endured and say, how are we gonna rebuild and start on a better footing? Turn to human dignity is the answer. So we have a very old constitution. So a lot of the cases that I looked at were pre-1945. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, the court talks a lot about dignity or mentions dignity in a lot of cases, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, and it's usually the dignity of states, the dignity of a contract, the dignity of Congress, the dignity of courts, the dignity of all these inchoate things. And it really wasn't until the post-World War II era that the US Supreme Court started to talk about human dignity in the way that is familiar um, and sort of consistent with, with the rest of the world. Um, the US court has been slow to see how dignity undergirds everything. And I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for that that really have a lot to do with how the court thinks about the constitution and its own role in our society, sort of other kind of jurisprudential issues that are kind of, you know, to the side. Mm -hmm. But we all, I think, know that our court has interpreted our constitution in ways that is not especially rights expansive. And so it hasn't really focused on the idea of dignity as a right to human flourishing or a right to human self-determination, the way other courts have embraced that concept. Right, yeah. So one of the things you and I were talking about when we were talking about, um, there's so many people in our country right now that can't uh, provide for themselves. Factories have closed down, especially in mid-America. Uh, people have turned to drugs to cope. Um, and you said people feel demeaned and looked down upon when they cannot provide for themselves and their family. And I found one thing in your book fascinating, and that was the Greek constitution encourages economic development, but not at the expense of freedom and human dignity. So it's impossible to maintain dignity when you're homeless, living as a refugee, in prison with inhumane conditions, unemployed and no jobs available unable to get education or healthcare. And I include dental care in that because there are so many people, uh, I, I work in the mental health system, uh, the county mental health system, and there are so many people that cannot afford dental work. A lot of their teeth are missing, if not you know, all of them, it just breaks my heart. So um, let's see, what do you wanna say about that before I, I go any further? 
Well, I do want to say that I think your example is just so interesting and so illustrative of, of the complexity and the breadth of dignity, right? That just a matter of going to the dentist and getting dental care, that's yeah. a dignity issue. Um, mental health, that's a dignity issue. Like those all go to how we feel and how, we're, how we engage with others. There are a number of countries, and I guess I want to preface this also by saying that I look at the courts and I look at the court decisions because I'm really interested in just sort of how judges talk about these issues and how different it is in other countries than ours. I don't, I, I, I understand that um, it is not the case that in all these countries, everybody is living with dignity. Right. right. I mean, there are still huge problems of implementation, huge problems of poverty all over the place, et cetera. There's a wonderful dignity jurisprudence in India, in South Africa, in a lot of countries where there's also massive poverty. So mm -hmm. we need to sort of keep that in mind. This is having a decision from a court that says this does not mean, you know, magic wand and suddenly nobody has poverty. Right. So I, I do want to sort of, there is that caveat when we talk yeah. about implementation. Right. Um, but I think that your question sort of illustrates something that the courts have um, recognized in a lot of different countries, which is that poverty is a dignity issue, mm -hmm. both because of how it makes you feel if you're a mom and you can't feed your kids, um, that's a dignity issue. Um, and, a and also because it's isolating. And mm -hmm. one of the aspects of dignity, and it goes back to this notion that it's sort of two-sided, it's both internal and external. But there's something that I've started to call the dignity of belonging, the mm -hmm. importance of being able to be a part of a community. Um, this is why solitary confinement is horrific, right. um, by, by the way. <laughs> but, but the importance of being part of a community and some of the courts have talked about that specifically in dignity terms, really tying these two things together, that poverty isolates people. Um, disease and inadequate healthcare isolates people, mental um, inadequate mental health care isolates people. And so those are harms, not just because it just makes life harder to have those things going on, but they're also harms because it alienates you. It isolates you from your community. And yeah. I've seen a number of court decisions where they talk about people having the right to health care or a pension or whatever sort of socioeconomic needs there are, mm -hmm. sufficient to enable a person to participate in the community. Right. In fact, there was a case in the US Supreme Court called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, since overruled this summer, but it actually connected reproductive rights, specifically abortion, with the ability to participate in the social and economic life of the nation as a dignity matter, sort of tying those two things together. Mm -hmm. So even in our you know, constitutional history, we do have examples where the court has, has recognized, has sort of touched on these issues without 
delving in as deeply as as they might. Right, right. Well, when you mention the prisons, I think of the violation of dignity that we're willing to imprison somebody and spend more money than we're willing to educate them and house them. That is just a, a you know, that just floors me that we are willing to do that. I know it's big business, but that's another issue. We're willing to uh, have others thrive at the expense of others. And that's a big, just the way you phrase that is a big issue in, um, in dignity rights. The idea that if we all have equal worth, and we have this capacity for self-determination, for agency, right? To have some control over your life. Yeah. Um, there's a few really important implications that flow from that. One is that dignity has to be equal, right? Because as soon as somebody says, well, I have more dignity than you do, then, <laughs> then the game is lost, right? Then I can do anything because I have more dignity than you do. I can do anything to you. Yeah. And one of the basic principles of dignity is, is what's sometimes called sort of an anti-objectification principle is that you can't, cons um, it's inconsistent with the principle of dignity to objectify somebody, to use somebody for, your own purposes. So when we have deterrence as a justification for punishment, you did this thing and I'm gonna punish you really harshly just so that other people learn a lesson. That's using one person's life um, to advance some other goal. And that is really inconsistent with the idea that every person is their own agent. Mm. Yeah. Um, one other thing I'll say about this, uh, this was from the two, a 2010 German constitutional court case. Dignity means that people must have some control over their lives and must not be forced by circumstances to devote their lives to finding food or protection from the elements. And we have so many people in this country that work two and three jobs and still can't pay their bills. So when we talk about a living wage, that's really what we're talking about. The people should be able to live with dignity on the pay that they earn, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think you're, you're right in sort of bringing these issues up. I, I feel that if we had a dignity-based system, we would have very different policies, right? Oh, right. Um, I mean, that's... So a lot of the work I'm doing right now, actually, with my students in the Dignity Rights Clinic at the law school is looking at the criminal justice system and looking at the different places within that system where there are indignities. And yes, you're right. There's a lot of places in that system. And just thinking, how can we rethink our criminal legal system so that it does respect human dignity? And again, other countries, and none is perfect, but other countries have really sort of taken seriously that challenge to build a criminal legal system that nonetheless respects dignity. Yeah. Yeah, what's heartbreaking to me is that you go into prison and there's so much violence there, yeah. right? You're taken off the streets because people consider you violent 
uh, and drugs, you know, I, that's a whole different issue. But um, and then you you're brought into a place where you have to survive. You have to, you know, survive to. You have to be worried about whether you can survive it or not. Right. And the food is disgusting. I mean, there's so many um, violations of, of dignity in the prison system. And we are on this moral high horse saying you violated society. And so we're going to put you in here. And, and now we don't care what happens to you. It's just so wrong. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, and before I, I go ahead, don't have a commitment to do this with dignity. Like we could, we know, we know how to do it. It's not that we haven't figured out the answers. We know how to do it. We choose to have a criminal legal system that is not respectful of people's dignity. Right, right. And I uh, know people that were in the criminal justice system off and on since they were young. Uh, and it wasn't until 50 years old that somebody finally got the mental health help. And there were so many times when that where people can be helped and resources can be devoted, but we just don't have that as a priority. All right, so any questions before I, I go further? Any questions from anybody on the call? DJ, go ahead. Okay, so this, this is really great. Thank you so much, Erin, for being here and Kathy for bringing Erin here. Um, I'm doing some research in an area that I'm not very strong and it has to do with, it could have to do with the law, um, but it has to do with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion in corporations and businesses. And I think what's happened, and I could be wrong because I'm just starting my research, but I think what's happened is a lot of money has been dumped into these projects and programs and strategies and there may be laws and policies that support them or not, I don't know, but they're generally a failure. And what I have found so far in my research is that there's an us and them kind of, you know, thinking that's going on, like the in people or the people who are like in the corporation already and doing really well, and the out people are the people who, you know, are out and it just seems really wrongheaded to me. And I'm really not sure what to do with this research like what direction should I be going? And should we just do away with DEI or what are you thinking? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think, I guess a couple of thoughts. One is that I do think that taken seriously, dignity, I mean, the idea of dignity and what it stands for, and again, I go back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights just because I think that sort of encapsulates so much of what's come since then. And so, I mean, our thinking since then has evolved, but it's really rooted in, in the basic principles that the UDHR sort of articulated. Um, and it does have, I mean, if everybody is equal in dignity, then we should, if we think about it in those terms, be able to diminish the othering that we do, right? Because whatever the differences are between us, um, they're kind of insignificant compared to the fact that we all have equal human worth. Um, so in a way I do, like, I think it's really interesting to think about the problems in sort of the DEI industry 
as being sort of about othering, because I do think that's potentially a tool that, or that's potentially a problem that thinking in terms of human dignity can fix. Um, and I think also that, you know, and this goes back to a little bit what Kathy was asking about, but I'd, I guess I wouldn't advocate sort of throwing out the whole concept of DEI because it, it's, it's well-intentioned and it's trying to get at something really important. And the reason it's getting at something really important is that as we were talking about before, but the, the notion of discrimination in so many different ways, whether it's exclusion or oppression or just unequal pay or whatever it is, um, is really a dignity harm. Those are dignity harms, right? The reason, again, the reason that, that, um, that racism is bad is because it conflicts with the idea of the equal human worth of every person. So if you look at the harms that way, then maybe that's a possible way of thinking about the answers. And if you design policies that are sort of human-based rather than the goals of the corporation-based um, and based in terms of how you want the community to be so that you know the maximum number of people can flourish in optimal ways like that's the basic goal right so maybe that's a that's a way to get into the problem um, but i do think that understanding understanding um, discrimination in all its forms as a violation of dignity, as a violation of the principle of the equal dignity of every person is a starting point to being able to figure out how we want to address those issues. Great. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Deanne? Yeah, thanks. Erin, um, thank you so much um, for this discussion. Um, I, uh, I guess I, I'm thinking a lot about listening to you talking about dignity and thinking about um, the legislation to create a Department of Peace Building. And we just finished um, with a round of advocacy days where we had discussions with staffers um, in congressional offices about this bill. And one of the things that resonated with me um, was the concept of institutionalizing our intentionality around peace building within our governmental systems. And, um, and I guess I'm hearing you saying, you're talking about other countries um, that recognize dignity as a basic um, concept, bedrock concept that needs to be addressed. And I, I keep thinking about the legislation to create a department of peace building, and, and 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 I feel like the two things are interconnected. That that to that that's a lar large part of what the the legislation is asking for us to consider. This country, you know, I mean, was founded on taking the dignity away of the Native Americans that they found when they when they landed on the shores of this country. So it's it's. Um, you know, we, we haven't gotten that right yet, <laughs> uh, for sure. And so um, I guess I just wanted to enter into the conversation, just the, 
the concept of the importance and tie in the importance of that legislation with what you're talking about that. And maybe this is just making a note for myself about when we talk to staffers about the importance of dignity. I'd love to hear your your if you've had a chance. I don't know if you've had a chance to read the bill or not, but I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so much part of the conversation again, because just that's the purpose of this. And it's also, you can think of it as just the guiding principle of it, right? So even when we have, um, you know, whatever policies the US government has, whether it's pol domestic policies or, you know, peace building abroad or whatever it is, um, uh, that can, it can always be done with dignity and with attention to the dignity of every person. Um, and so I think that, that it's a useful, and, and I think it's a useful um, lodestar for a lot of this work. And in fact, I think what happens if you don't do it is that you get lost. You get, you, you lose your way unless you remember that the purpose of this is so that people can live better lives, which is yeah. really all it is, yeah. right? And it also, I mean, you're talking about the founding and it just goes back to what, um, talking about the, the founding and sort of um, creating this country by, um, to put it mildly, disrespecting the dignity of those who were here and of course, building it on slavery. Um, and again, that's something that we haven't quite reckoned with, uh, to put it mildly. And it goes back to the question or to the issue that Kathy was sort of mentioning before about reparations and um, those kinds of issues. But I think, you know, one of the things that I see in these other countries, and I alluded to it before, but just when countries remake themselves out after some kind of war or trauma or whatever, they they're reckoning with the past in some in some way. And again, I don't want to appear naive about it. And I know that that reckoning is almost always imperfect and, you know, biased in different ways and has all kinds of issues attached to it. But just the fact of trying to reckon with it, to acknowledge this happened to us, we let this happen in our country. We have to fix it and find a way out of that and rebuild on a different uh, moral and normative and legal foundation. And that's what these constitutions are doing, these sort of post, what I call sort of post-political trauma constitutions. That's what we never did in the US. And so we're still, as a country, sort of arguing about the meaning of the Civil War and arguing about the meaning of you know, slavery before that and indigenous people and everything, that's still something that we haven't, we as a nation haven't developed our, a common understanding of. And so it's really hard to move forward into it on a new moral foundation without a common understanding of what happened and why it happened and why we don't want that to happen again. Mm -hmm. So yeah, these concepts are, um, I think they talk to each other in ways that are that are complex and interesting and um, 
I don't want it to sound too complicated because at root, it's really not. Yeah. Yeah, and you talk about this in the book a little bit. On page 128, you talk about the aspirational aspects of dignity. Uh, the state must not establish rigid, rigid social stratification that could co consign individuals to a particular station in life. And the examples are India and the caste system, Jim Crow in the US, and then apartheid in South Africa. And uh, Isabel Wilkerson speaks to all of this in her book, Cast. And, and then you say, um, although dignity attaches to the individual, it radiates out to everyone in society so that everyone benefits when anyone's dignity is respected. And then, um, so I look at that and I say, on the other hand, when somebody's dignity is not respected, it causes harm to the community, to everybody. And that's, so reparations isn't just for those harmed directly, it's for everybody. I mean, we have to come together and heal, heal the soul of the nation, heal each of our souls. I think that's right. I mean, we all live in these multiple contexts, right? We live as individuals, but we also live as part of our local communities and families and, you know, and broader and broader communities. And so the way we experience dignity and indignity of our own and of others, um, I think is something that we need to, that we need to think about. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And then uh, in this book, Reconciliation and Divided Societies, you talk a lot about the different kinds of reconciliations there are and how it works in different countries. And I found that fascinating. I've only you know got like the first 40 pages, but this is just really good on, on all of that. And it's got a foreword by Desmond Tutu. So um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, ask you if you have any any last word. Well, first of all, are there any other questions? Akendra. I, I've just been wondering as a constitutional lawyer, if, if there could be a lawsuit about separate but equal in all of, all of our, uh, it, more in education and in our whole economy and culture, because we're built on um, separate economies in our counties or in our school districts and property taxes. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying it right, but I, I think there's an inherent inequality built into the system that we could demonstrate. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's right. Uh, there have been lawsuits around that. Um, the US Supreme Court, I mean, that's the essence of Brown versus Board of Education to go back to that. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States in interpreting the federal constitution has been quite narrow in the way it understands rights and has put up a number of sort of barriers or hurdles to recovery so that where you might see inequality, economic inequality or 
as you say, sort of in the taxation, the way we fund school districts, things like that. Um, the court has been resistant to the idea of finding those rights in the, in the federal constitution. Some states have been more open to those kinds of issues. Um, but the US Supreme Court and, and, and the Dobbs decision from earlier this year is, is just a classic example of the way the court has basically said, these things are not, you, they're not federal constitutional issues. If you don't like something, figure it out politically. If you want to change, do it politically. But we don't have sort of an, uh, um, an abundant or ample concept of rights at the federal constitutional level. And that's, and that's not a function. I mean, I, that's not a function of this particular Supreme Court. That's our Supreme Court throughout history with some notable exceptions. But in general, the court has not looked to the US Constitution as a place to find capacious or progressive or dignity-based rights. Mm -hmm. Right. So go out and vote. Thank you. Is there anything, anything you'd like to say to wrap up? No, just thank you so much for inviting me here. And um, I, I just think that the questions um, have been really fascinating and really challenging for me in terms of just sort of the different ways that dignity sort of can, can spider into these different issues and hopefully make a difference. So I just, you know, would like to invite you if anybody would like to continue the conversation in the specific context that you're working in or thinking about, please, please get in touch with me. Um, and I'd be happy to talk to you more about it. But thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Erin. It's been fascinating. Um, so I'm going to close the call and then I'm going to read um, a short excerpt from the Belgium Constitution because they've got some wonderful things in there. Uh, so if you love and benefit from the programs we offer, please consider donating. We're a small uh, nonprofit, appreciate donations of any size. And we are trying, we are working toward our goal of raising $20,000 and enrolling 22 monthly donors. So please consider that. Uh, you can find out about all of our programs by going to peacealliance.org in the top right-hand corner is the calendar. Click on that and you can see what's going on. And if you click on that, it'll uh, take you to the Zoom link uh, on the night and time of the call. We send one email a week on Mondays uh, that, um, tells you about all the programs coming up that week and, and, and beyond. Uh, we are um, gearing up for our November 8th Peace to the Polls Election Day vigil, vigil beginning at noon Eastern time till 2 a.m. Eastern time. We've got a day full of speakers and the themes are depolarizing conversations, uh, practice, uh, personal peace practices, and what we'll, be do, what we'll be doing, no matter who wins the election, what will we continue to be doing? And we start off with, a, with community, community TEA uh, from uh, the first two hours. So join us for tea and bring your cookies or scones. And if you miss any of our calls, you can listen to them on our Peace On podcast page. 
Uh, there's a link in the chat to the podcast. Uh, share on Facebook and with your friends. Like us on Facebook if you have not already. Just search for Peace Alliance. And so I'm going to close with uh, something from the Belgium Constitution. Uh, and it talks about economic, social, and cultural rights. The right to employment, stable employment, and employment that uh, um, pays a fair wage. I love the stable employment part. Uh, the right to social security, to health care, and to social, medical, and legal aid. The right to have decent accommodation, the right to enjoy the protection of a healthy environment. And I love this one, the right to enjoy cultural and social fulfillment. So this is aspirational, of course, but this is just, if every human being on the planet had this, this would be, we would be, we would have heaven on earth, right? So anyway, thank you all. Erin, uh, thank you, thank you so much. Um, and do you wanna stay so we can just debrief a little bit? So I can say thank you, thank you, just sure. between me and you and Deanne and Kendra, if you want to stay, and Kyle. <sighs> All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us today at Peace On. We hope that it inspires you to engage in dialogue in your larger community. Peace On is brought to you by the Peace Alliance, found at peacealliance.org. <laughs>